Okay, thanks. We're going to get started now. My name is Rob Penzer. I'm the Associate Director of the Helix Center. I have a few announcements of upcoming programs before we get to today's John Templeton Foundation-sponsored roundtable. Uh, next, I'm sorry, Saturday, May 2nd, we have Trauma and its After Effects. It will be a two-part series, and the first part is on war and genocide. We'll have historian Adam Sachs, multimedia director and publicist Gottfried Wagner, psychoanalyst Ava Weil, and journalist Phil Zabriskie. On Saturday, <coughs> May 16th, Humans and Animals, Continuities and Discontinuities, with mind-body investigator Theodore Diamond, Jr., animal cognitive scientist Irene Pepperberg, and Diana Reese, and others. I also wanted to alert you to the upcoming Helix Center annual benefit dinner, which will take place Friday evening, May 8th. Information and tickets uh, are available through the Helix Center website at www.helixcenter.org. And uh, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and uh, tweet generously. So today's uh, roundtable, The Changing Nature of Free Will, uh, there are more extensive uh, biographies than the introduction I'll provide. They're on your handouts and also on the website. But as I introduce each of the participants, if he or she can raise your hand so uh, the audience will identify you. Akhil Bilgrami is the Sidney Morgan Besser Professor of Philosophy at Columbia University. His main areas of research are philosophy of mind and language, moral psychology, and political philosophy. He's the author of three books, Belief and Meaning, Self-Knowledge and Resentment, and Secularism, Identity, and Enchantment. He's currently writing a book on the nature of value, practical reason, and agency. Louis Cabral is the Pagnelli Bull Professor of Econ Economics and International Business at NYU's Stern School of Business. His research focuses on the dynamics of firm competition, both from the antitrust and from the strategy perspectives. His research topics include reputation, learning, network effects, sunk costs, innovation, strategic risk choice. In addition to numerous journal articles, he is the author of Introduction to Industrial Organization. Brigitte Kahl is a professor of New Testament at Union Theological Seminary in New York and associate professor at the Religion Department at Columbia. A biblical scholar with strong interdisciplinary and ecological leanings, a major focus of her recent work has been the relationship between New Testament and Roman Empire, especially with regard to the letters of Paul. She's the author of numerous articles and several books, including Galatians Reimagined, Reading with the Eyes of the Vanquished. Ken Kashida is a research scientist in the Computational Psychiatry Unit at the Virginia Tech Karelian Research Institute. He investigates neurobiological processes underlying human choice behavior using computational approaches paired with measurements of behavior and associated neural activity. Such experiments designed to expose how the brain encodes computations important for adaptive choice behavior. And Simon Koshin is Professor Emeritus and Senior Research Scientist in the Mathematics Department of Princeton University. A recipient of the Frank Nelson Cole Prize in Number Theory of the American Mathematical Society, his interests lie in mathematical logic, number theory, and quantum mechanics. His work on the foundation of quantum mechanics includes the paper with Ernest Specter, I'm sorry, Specker, on the Koshin-Specker paradox, and with John Conway on the free will theorem. And now to our roundtable. All right, well, um, I have to confess, usually when I talk about free will, it's with other neuroscientists, um, not very often with 
philosophers or, or theologians. And so um, I, I know why uh, myself and, and, and folks that I talk about it with are interested in it, but I'm curious why uh, the rest of us here are interested in the problem or what, what, what value you guys have uh, placed on this idea. Hmm. Well, I, I don't work exactly on free will. In fact, the list of topics that you heard just before did not include free will. And a lot of different things that I work on, but not this. I think it's a fascinating topic, one that I'm interested in and I've been reading mostly about, and though I don't do a lot of research on. Um, just to get things started, I mean, personally, I don't think that free will is, a, is a, per se a proposition that can be proven or disproven. You may disagree from that. I see free will primarily as, as, as an axiom. You know, if there is no free will, um, then what's my identity? You know, everything that I do, that I think, uh, is just the uh, result of a series of temporal events, or uh, it's con totally conditioned by the movement of particles, or whatever uh, the uh, negation of free will is. Then I would have no identity, and, and I cannot, I cannot imagine a world where I wouldn't be I. So I like to think of free will as an axiom. I think it can be studied. Maybe it can be uh, falsified in some way. Um, but I would rather think about it as an axiom rather than a proposition that we can prove or disprove. Just an idea. So, I mean, unless someone wants to jump in, I'll add a bit to that. Um, so when I've thought about this in the past, before I um, really pursued uh, a role in, in science trying to answer these kinds of questions. Um, in that transition, I, I found that actually the idea of free will, um, it has this kind of use as a, as a belief to, to, to frame how we do think about ourselves and how the choices we make um, have an impact. Um, but from a scientific perspective, I actually find that it's uh, very challenging to use that idea to go in and study the thing that, that, that it's trying to capture. It, um, when you get into discussions of free will or consciousness, a lot of it boils down to an hour of trying for everyone involved to, to define what it is we're trying to talk about, right? But when, when we're talking about free will, to me it seems like what it is is we're, we're interested in how humans make choices, right? The, the choice behaviors that we see, we want to explain when we execute certain actions, it has some repercussions. Um, could we have done something different had we been in that moment again? Um, and we want to try and explain that. So it's, 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 to me, it seems like it's a useful idea only to kind of fill in a gap where we haven't really explored it very much. Um, and so as a neuroscientist, I've been interested in studying choice behavior from a biological standpoint and trying to understand um, what does lead to um, the varieties of choice that we express, right? So um, I wouldn't say that it's free. Um, there's really nothing free about what humans or, or any other biological organism does, everything comes at a cost, right? We, we, um, we can't go on forever without eating or sleeping or breathing. Um, and so there's a real constraints on the kinds of choices that we can make and how we can navigate the world. Um, on the other hand, uh, as humans, we, we seem to have gained some control over the environment so that we can have these luxuries. Um, we can sit in a room and talk about things rather than be out hunting and gathering our, our resources or acquiring shelters, right? Um, and so we get this kind of luxury, and, 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 and that expands to lots of other domains where we create some freedom um, from our you know, evolutionary past, I guess. 
So let me just ask you something. Would you agree with the proposition that the only reason why we cannot predict the uh, behavior of a certain agent, be it human or non-human, is uh, lack of precision in measurement? That one day, if we measure uh, neurologically with sufficient accuracy, uh, every single neuron of the human brain would effectively be able to model and therefore predict behavior. Yeah, so, so, so in some ways, um, we do predict behavior, right? If, um, if I want to make you feel bad, I'll insult you, right? Or mm -hmm. um, I'll attack you physically, right? Um, and that will have very predictable consequences on how you're going to act you know, back with me. Um, I have kids, and so when I want them to do certain things, I know there's certain strategies that I could use to, to interact with them and, and others that they won't be very effective. Um, from a scientific standpoint, um, you can put people uh, or uh, rats or pigeons into a Skinner box where they can make choices and you can set up the reward schedule behind those levers um, in such a way that, that they will act actually quite predictably. Um, uh, in some sense, it's, it's in probabilistic terms, right? Decision, decision it is not a, a perfect prediction. So the question but, is that hmm? it's probabilistic, and it's said, and rightly so. Mm -hmm. Is that error term in your models, is that due to measurement error, or is it due to something that's inherent to the model that you model? That, is, I think, is the big philosophical or whatever question about uh, free will. Is it all a matter of measurement? The only reason why I cannot predict exactly what your the rat or human subject is going to do is that I'm not measuring carefully enough, or is there any fundamental residue, if you will, of uncertainty which uh, cannot be uh, properly predicted? So let me, uh, let me interject here. So uh, part of that question is, is the uncertainty uh, our knowledge of what's going on? As philosophers say, epistemological, or is there an, an underlying uncertainty? So, um, well, I'm a mathematician, and um, you might ask why I'm here altogether. Uh, but um, about eight years ago, uh, um, I proved a result uh, together with John Conway at Princeton, uh, which is a refinement of a much older theorem going back uh, with Ernst Beck, a Swiss mathematician almost 50 years. And the question there is, the underlying question is not directly about free will, but about the question of determinism in the universe. Is the universe strictly deterministic? In, in a quite precise way that uh, classical physics since Isaac Newton has said that um, if you know the state of the, never mind no, if the state of the universe is whatever it is at a given time, classical physics tells you that the state of the universe, both at any other time, both in the future and the past, is totally determined. So uh, that was started a century by Isaac Newton in his system of the world. And um, that brings in an old philosophical question that goes back over 2,000 years between the Stoics and Epicurus and then later the Romans with Lucretius and, uh, and, and Cicero. And the more modern version is uh, 
uh, what Hume started and Hobbes in the 18th century, and it's what's called compatibilism uh, by philosophers. Is free will compatible with such a deterministic picture of the universe? So the contribution that, uh, that these theorems make uh, that I was talking about is to say that it's pointless to even talk about that because modern physics uh, in the form of quantum mechanics gives rise to, to certain experiments which shows that... So quantum me if mechanics itself, if you accept it, says that uh, even if you know precisely the state as much as you can, what's called a pure state, at the present time for a, a closed system, like a particle or several, then the future, you can, for the future, you can only talk about probabilities for that. And if you accept quantum mechanics, that's not epistemological. It's not our knowledge. It's just an ontological fact that you cannot give that the, there are probabilities only that you can give. Uh, what the theorem that, that I'm talking about says is, see, people didn't like that point of view. Even the founders of quantum mechanics, like Schrodinger and Einstein, really were not very happy with this uh, whole idea of there being an inherent probability. And they, um, various people have tried to get back to a classical picture which reproduces the quantum picture, but says that these probabilities, if you knew the underlying, the underlying states, then that would be just our lack of knowledge of the underlying hidden variables. So an example from biology is we have probabilities attached to, uh, for instance, to inherited traits like blue eyes and brown eyes. One used these probabilities. But Mendel introduced a sort of hidden variable, namely the gene, which nobody knew existed at that time. But it explained, in terms of recessive and dominant fa uh, uh, factors, it explained the probabilities very well. And eventually, they were actually found as, as molecules. So people who believe in such hidden variables uh, they feel that they might try to explain the probabilities of quantum mechanics in the same way. Um, this theorem, uh, I'm not going to make a distinction between Specker and myself, and then somewhat improved on with Conway and myself, it says that you can't do this for quantum mechanics. If you try to give a classical explanation of certain experiments that we came up with, uh, you're running simply into a contradiction. If you actually want to say what the future state is, I can explain this in more detail if people want later, but there just are a series of 40 experiments and which, uh, which quantum mechanics gives probabilities for, for the outcomes, but if you try to give say this is the outcome for this and this is the outcome for this, you simply run into a mathematical contradiction. So that's, that's what the theorem is about. And it, what it says is that the whole, this argument between what are called compatibilists and those who don't, who believe compatibilism and free will are, in fact, 
they are not compatible, that, the, that, that is to say that free will and uh, determinism are incompatible, the incompatibilists, uh, that, that argument is an old-fashioned argument which now since quantum mechanics for almost a hundred years is simply out of date. One doesn't have to talk about discompatibilism because quantum mechanics is a pro in ontologically probabilistic theory and this theorem says we will never get back to a classical kind of deterministic universe. So, uh, the, the question partly is whether those who believe in free will will find comfort in the fact that we move from some level of certainty to predictions that are merely probabilistic. Uh, they might say that the real threat to uh, free will is that you should see it as that, that human agency is susceptible to prediction even if the prediction is demoted to a probabilistic prediction uh, for the reasons that you mm -hmm. and others have uh, established. So uh, here are two questions that, that, that um, seem to suggest that there's a more principled issue about freedom than, than one of whether uh, the system, this closed system, is to be seen in probabilistic terms or something uh, uh, more close to certainty. One is, uh, to raise the question uh, you asked, you see, if, if it is the case that all laws, even in Newton's uh, uh, mechanics, Laws presumably come with ceteris uh, paribus clauses, with uh, all things being equal clauses, right? So, uh, what in Latin is called ceteris paribus clauses. You, that is, you hold certain things steady. So uh, you can predict something, but so long as certain conditions are met, right? So there's a, a clause which says, it's as it were, looking out for things that allow for exceptions and saying those mustn't arise, those conditions mustn't arise. Now the trouble with human behavior is that if we were tempted to say that certain intentions uh, and choices and preferences, um, if one were tempted to say that their laws are either probabilistic or, or, or more definite forms of law, uh, if one were tempted to say there are laws would say, if you made certain choices or had certain preferences, you would act in such and such way. The trouble is, when we try and say what has to be held steady in a ceteris paribus clause, it's just about everything, right? I mean, if I say, if I'm thirsty and I believe that, that water will quench my thirst, and so I predict that I will if I have that thirst and that belief, I will drink that water. That could go, that prediction could be falsified by just about anything, right? By my being too lazy to pick it up, by my being too busy talking to pick it up, by my preferring orange juice to drinking that, it could be just about anything. So what has to be held steady 
when one says, all things being equal, I will drink that water if I have that visit. We have no ex-ante hold over all that has to be held steady. But if you compare what has to be held steady, say, in the law of falling bodies in Newton, you can ex-ante state in a very general way what has to be held steady. And that's part of the problem that you were raising. We have no, all the all things being equal clauses, as it were, have to come ex post. We can't ex ante say what has to be held steady. I think that's part of the problem. Isn't that the promise of uh, neuroscience that we will be able to control that? I mean, if you get down to the really uh, nitty gritty of neurological activity that eventually, if you measure sufficiently well, you should be able to control for all of those conditions. You know, your past behavior, your state of... Yes. The state of the world could also be the state of your mind in, in measured in some precise way. Right. You could do that, but by changing the subject. That is, you, you couldn't do it with the vocabulary of orange juice, thirst, and so on. You'd have to do it with the vocabulary of neurophysiological states, right? So, in a sense, you, change, you can do that by a reductive change of the subject. Right? You can't do it with the vocabulary of beliefs, desires, preferences, etc. You, you, you can talk about brain states, and then the question arises, well, we wanted a prediction with this vocabulary. You've given us a prediction in a different vocabulary, and that really is, in a way, the mind-body problem. And it seems, it seems like some of the, the resistance to that change in vocabulary is that it's not the vocabulary that we use day to day, yeah. right? And the value, from what I understand, about free will, um, we're not so concerned about whether or not our pet dog has free will. We, want, we care about whether or not other humans have free will. Because when they do things that we either don't accept or, or that we want to support, we want to assign them credit or not. Um, And, and, and there's, uh, I think, good evidence that this is something that, that's very important to our species. It's something that's evolved in, in, in how we process information about others. It's how we organize in small groups, but then also bigger structures. And so if you change the vocabulary to a biological one or a neurophysiological one, um, there's a, a worry that, that then um, uh, the whole social structure, which is built on this other language will, will collapse. And, and I don't think that's actually what's going to happen. We already do make exceptions uh, based on what we understand from, from medicine and neurobiology, right? So wh whether it's legal or whether it's interpersonal, if, if a person um, has a particular psychiatric condition and it causes them to act in certain ways, um, treated or untreated, uh, we don't treat them the same way uh, as a society as, as someone who, who does not have that, that condition, right? Um, and that's true in, in, in many cases. So um, just because you can make predictions, um, I, it doesn't seem to remove agency. Um, it doesn't seem to remove control. In, in fact, actually, I think it actually enhances it and provides more control um, as we start to understand where these constraints uh, come from, uh, from our biology, our, our, our environment, uh, the interactions we have. Once we recognize that they are constraints, we could do things as a society. We can make choices to, to, to remove them, right? to, to make things more equal, a little more level playing field. Um, and, and so in some sense, by, by changing the language, learning what is or is not predictable, um, we're actually gaining more control. Um, so, so wait, so that, mm -hmm. that makes it sound as if the more determined we are, 
And the more knowledge we have of the determining factors, the more free we are. As we come to understand that, so, so uh, I, I'm not sure if, if this is the distinction you're making, but it's as though as we learn about it, we become more determined. Right? So, so I guess what I'm saying is that um, there are forces that we're completely unaware of in our biology and in our environment that have impacts on the way we make decisions. Right, right now... You know, I understand mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. but, but I thought your point was that once we come to know more about those determining factors, mm -hmm. we actually gain more agentive control and therefore are more free. Yes. Okay. So, so, so there's nothing more free is different from completely free. Okay, but... Right. More, more but control, an, more choice. There's so, an air of paradox in that, isn't it? That usually we thought agency was threatened by determinism, and you're suggesting agency is enhanced by determinism so long as we have knowledge of the determining factors. So, so uh, if we're going from determinism to completely free will or some version of compatibilism, um, that is not the language that, that I'm I actually find useful to talk about these things from a, from a, uh, from the work that I do and the, the way that I approach these problems. Um, I can make observations, I can control certain experimental settings, and, and I can make measurements um, and generate models for what I might expect to happen into the future. So, so generating essentially scientific beliefs, right? Um, when we talk about free will and when we get really heated debates over that, what we're actually talking about is human behavior. When we see others, and, and so, so in the space of, of trying to explain human behavior, we can learn more about that and what is guiding that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you that if we, if we know more about what is determining our behavior, we do, in a sense, become more liberated because we know, we know what the knowledge of, as Spinoza said, the knowledge of necessity is actually a liberating thing. But here, here's the, the interesting, uh, it's really a very fascinating, virtually a paradox, which is that what you say is absolutely right. The more, the more we find out about, so, so if I'm angry and I've figured out what exactly the wellsprings of my anger are, I have more control of my anger. That's, that's the point that Spinoza was making. But here's the really fascinating thing. That is true only if it is piecemeal. If it's piecemeal. Mm -hmm. There is something which when it's small, right, my anger or some particular thing, one thing or the other. But if one had nothing but the perspective of seeing oneself, say, as a psychoanalyst sees one, right, just in a detached way. If one made that thing comprehensive, we would have no agency. So the very thing which, when read small, is liberating, in just the way you describe, if you just blow it up to, say, make it a comprehensive thing, saying, well, we can just see all our behavior that way, past, present, and future, and that's the end of agency. Well, it, it creates an interesting question, I think, about agency. Right? Where, where does that begin and end? What are those boundaries? Right? So from a biological perspective, um, an organism has physical boundaries, um, but, but that's different from, I, I think, the agency that you're talking about, so, so the, or the sense of it. Right? So, so um, while I uh, 
exist in the body that I walk around in. Um, I interact with people uh, and, and exchange information either consciously um, but also quite implicitly. Um, you know, just being in a room full of, of, of folks or, or being in a conversation, um, your brain is processing this information in ways that's guiding how you're going to behave in ways that you're not necessarily aware of. Um, and so uh, for uh, an observer of an agent in that, kind of, that context, our readout of their agency is, is really based on their behavior, right? It always comes back to um, one brain or one system looking at another uh, system and um, trying to determine who is the agent, right? No, but but the, mm -hmm. the, the hard question is what goes on when one is observing oneself, mm -hmm. right? So, and what I was saying was, of course, if you observe and study yourself, you will get more control of yourself in the future. But if you do nothing, if you have no other point of view on yourself but that of detached observation, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. then you've gotten rid of agency. So there must be some other perspective you have on yourself over and above a detached study of yourself. Mm -hmm. That is what everyone means by freedom. Sure. I, I mean, I, Gita, I think, uh, to, yeah. your, to your yeah. area. Well, it's it's quite fascinating to listen to all that and uh, trying to translate it into the vocabulary with which I am working. And I am just noticing that the, the same problems, but in a different key, have been discussed in theology throughout the centuries. And uh, it is so interesting, and this is one of the reasons why I really thought I should come here and just listen to you and see where we are in that. And so this big kind of paradoxic juxtaposition between determinism on the one hand, so things are determined, and in theology, of course, we say there is this supreme being called God, the deity, that, that has created everything and has is kind of sovereign, I mean, has sovereignty over things that happen. So that is the kind of person who destines, destines us or destines us or kind of is the kind of determinating force. And then on the other hand, of course, we also need free will, you know, because if everything is already set by God, then what the hell are we doing and how come that there is a judgment or that there is repentance, that we can change, that there is conversion and, and all these things, that there is this constant appeal to our moral agency or kind of spiritual agency to, to change who we are. And, and I think I have never worked on free will because I always thought this is a kind of a dead end discussion because theologians have kind of constantly been in battle about that. I mean, you know, you have two positions. One kind of camp says, and they are often, well, the heretics, they said there is free will. Even after the fall of, Ad, of Adam and Eve in paradise, um, you still can do good. And then there's the other position that says, no, we cannot do good. And when you were talking, I just, about my decisions and thinking about what I am doing, I just was kind of thinking of Paul who said, oh, I'm miserable, I'm such a miserable being because I constantly do what I not want. 
You know, I know what is good. I know what I want to do. But how come that I constantly do the opposite? You know, that is, you know, my, my freedom is restricted. And why is my freedom restricted? And then there is this big term, sin. I'm in bondage. I'm kind of, I'm, I see the things I would like to do, but I don't do them because another law is at work in my limbs, in my feet, in my hand, uh, than what my mind tells me. So, and then Paul says, you know, but there is a way out of that. And here is the question how kind of theologians are asking them, where are we going with that? What is at stake in this debate? Is at stake whether I eat eggs or bacon for breakfast? Or is this choice, or is something else at stake? Can we, can we, well, can we do, can we even keep the world in a state that it is livable, for example? Or are we kind of um, doomed to turn it into hell? That, I think this is the theological question. So do we have the agency to do good, or are we all under the spell of evil? And this is why I'm so interested in, in listening to neuroscience and to quantum mechanics. So because I think there are, is this kind of, on the one hand, we are far more, far more determined than we think we are. And on the other hand, there is a space of freedom. I mean, this is what I hear you too say. And um, do I hear you wrong, or is? Uh, I, I mean, I think it's interesting um, we, we ask um, the question of, a, of the, this, this force that's, that's pushing us forward. And, and, and it also speaks to, I think, um, this idea of agency. Where is, where, where is agency? So agency, free will, um, these are ideas that seem to be very useful to us as human beings, right? It, it's something that we do care a lot about. We spend a lot of cycles thinking about. Um, from a biological perspective, uh, there is a lot at stake, and it's, it's the survival of our species, and that's always been the case. And that's true for, for any species on this planet. It's always been about the survival of the species. And so there are uh, things that, that, that will promote the survival and, and things that, that, that will demote that. Um, and and uh, evolution by natural selection would say that basically you, um, that which, which survives wins. So the, the, there's no really other value function on it that um, those ideas or, or those things that support the survival of the species onto the next stage and the next generation um, are fit. And so um, I'd actually propose a, a compromise between what some popular scientists uh, view on religion um, and, and what religion's role has been in, in for, for humanity is that um, there has, uh, it's, it's been a useful idea. It helps to organize our day to day where we fit in, in the world. Um, if it wasn't useful to us as a species, it would have been dropped long ago, right? And we would have all passed that. We haven't done that. We, we hang on to these ideas of, of being an agent or having free will um, or, or, or all kinds of narratives. And, and science is its own narrative based on um, experimentation and empirical thought. So you think that's uh, also true for free will as a, um, an instrument for moral agency that's re necessary for living in society? I think, I, think, I think it's something that we hang on to as a species because it is useful. Um, at some point, it occurred to me personally, well, what if I didn't have free will? A college student, I was thinking, well, 
either I have free will or I don't. Well, what if I don't? Well, whether I do or don't, my life doesn't really change. I, I can't really change my behavior in any other way, right? So, so, so the choices I make are the choices I make. I'm chasing some uh, value uh, for every choice. Um, and, and kind of letting go of that idea and looking to, to other ways to explain my behavior or others' behavior uh, became more interesting. Um, but there's all kinds of ideas that I think that, that, um, you know, that do carry some value to us. And, and, and where that comes from, where that value comes from, that, that's an open question, I think. But, um. I, mean, I, this, uh, I, I think it's hard to deny what you're saying, but I, I'm wondering if the term useful is the right term. That is, I, I'm, my, all my instincts are to say that there's something more um, lofty about the norm which says we can't, we ought not to shed the concept of human freedom. Not, not that just that it's useful, but we ought not to. So I have a loftier sense of the norm than the norms of utility. Uh, one, one way to ask the question which, um, which your work uh, establishes that there is a notion of free, uh, there's, there's a falsity about determinism uh, in, in the way you've, in the move from uh, Newtonian mechanics to, to contemporary physics. Um, one thing we might ask is, what is the location for the idea of norms or the usefulness of the notion of agency, which is partly what you were saying too. And so here's, here's a very simple question. S suppose you did something, so, suppose X did something very harmful because for its own delightful sake or, or for personal gain or something like that. Right? And somebody else, say why, did the same harmful thing because he was forced to do it, say physically forced, or somebody put a machine gun to his head and said, do it or I'll shoot you. Okay. So X and Y do exactly the same thing. It's a bad thing. X does it because he wants to do it, wants some gain from it, etc. Y does it because somebody's just forced him to do it, say physically. Now, we will never give up the distinction between these two people. However much we find out about the brain, whatever we find out, all the things that, that you know, that uh, these current, you know, uh, is it Libé? How do you pronounce his name? Libé. Libé and others have done. Let's say they're all right, right? All of this neuroscience establishes this. Will we ever give up the distinction between X and Y? Will that's an, I think that's an empirical question, right? That's something so, so empirical in the sense that... But no, that I'm suggesting we ought not to give up the distinction. So I'm denying it's an empirical question. Well, I'm saying it's a normative question. We should never, we should not give up. We should say somebody was forced to do it should be treated differently from somebody who did it, say... Now, that so, so just for the record, I do agree with you. I, I also share that belief that we ought not uh, abandon that distinction. Okay. But when I say that it's empirical, 
Um, say, uh, for simplicity's sake, there's two halves of the population. One half of the population believes that we should remove that distinction, and the other half thinks that we ought not. Um, and, and then there's, there's changes in the environment. That there, there's um, grand scale forces in the environment that change, whether it's societal level or, or uh, whatnot. Um, and holding one belief or the other is beneficial to the species. Um, then, then it'll be determined at that point in time uh, which uh, basically wins out, right? I mean, so, so, so it's, it's, it's kind of a, a very abstract idea of whether or not we should maintain this distinction about responsibility for actions. Um, but if it's not a useful idea that, that promotes um, the genes that we carry, um, then I would say that, that, that it's empirical in that sense, that the evolutionary forces and kind of going forward in time will determine that for us. Um, now, uh, to, to go back to where I started, I, I do agree with you that, that, that we ought not lose that distinction. And, and I think part of that is, is um, it's come from our past. There, there might have been a, a period in time where, where we couldn't make that distinction. Right? And in this case is in, in the court system. We're, we're not really clear who's actually the, 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 the causative agent, whether it's the person or the person that's been manipulated. Um, and, and we well, struggle with assigning it seems that. to me it's... it's uh First of all, when you say species, you, you mean the human species? Mm -hmm. So, but what about all the part of us that is very similar in terms of behavior to animals? Yeah. What, what do you say to that? And are you saying that free will is a property of being part of the human species? Only in the sense that, that, that humans care about it, right? It's a belief or it's an idea that humans discuss and, and, and debate over. Um, there's actually... It becomes, a, from what Akhil said, becomes more immoral. What you said has a moral connotation. And that's also something that, that the human species uniquely cares about, right? So, so um, these are ideas that are very important to us, and they're probably important to us for a very good reason. And there's a reason that we don't want to let go of them, because when we do, the structure of our society would likely fall apart. It would just be very different. We, we wouldn't be human anymore. It's part of, I think, how we identify ourselves as, as being human. But I think what Simon said, you would not, your, 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 your proposal, your proposition doesn't only apply to humans. Well, we're talking, yes. So we're talking about determinism, and then we have to talk about free will. Um, now, my own feeling is that compatibilism really doesn't make a lot of sense. That if things are determined totally, and that applies to the exactly to the situation where it's no different than being coerced from the outside, is if everything is determined, you can't make that distinction between the two two cases that you talked about. So I th I really think. That question is, 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 is so. Let me make a, a point here about, um, um, is it really possible to get rid of determinism in an absolute way? You see, uh, these theorems that I was talking about, they're saying that the cl a classical theory, which is deterministic, uh, that that doesn't hold water anymore because of, say, these experiments I was taught, these 40 experiments. But you see, a classical theory is not simply telling, it's, 
A scientific theory is not history. It tells you, it gives you general laws and tells you uh, whatever the state is, it'll tell you what happens afterwards. And if it's classical, it'll tell you in a deterministic theory. If, if I lift this up, say, nine feet, uh, then I happen to know that if I time this, it should take three quarters of a second to fall. And that's not magic, it just follows a well-known law that uh, if you remember your high school physics, it's that the height, the S, is equal to 16 T squared uh, where, uh, in feet and seconds. And if I put in for the uh, height of nine feet, then I get nine over 16, and it's, I take the square root, I get three over four. Now, to know that is very interesting, perhaps, but that's not what scientific theories are about. I also want to know if I lift it up 16 feet, then it's going to take a full second by using the, it's the law and how that works under different conditions that, that tells me this. And this theorem I was talking about, that classical physics doesn't work, is of this type. It, you have to know that uh, no matter what possibility, suppose somebody says, yes, well, I'll tell you um, what happens in one of these 40, ex a particular one of these 40 experiments, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be right, perhaps. But I said, no, you have to tell me what happens in all of these. Now, that's what physics is supposed to predict. It's supposed to predict different things. But suppose uh, somebody says, I'm not interested in scientific theories. I believe in a, a being who's prescient. It doesn't have to be omnipotent, but he has to be present. He has to tell you what happens in the future. And I say, well, this experiment says you won't be able to predict all these things. He says, no, this being doesn't have to predict everything. He'll tell you that you have to choose this thing in particular, this experiment, and that experiment, I'll tell you what it is. So, you see, I can't act this theorem doesn't act against a prescient being, one who, who tells you what the actual trajectory of the world is. Scientific theories don't tell you the actual trajectory, they tell you the possible trajectory starting from any particular state. And that's very different. See, so this theorem that I was talking about can't can't argue directly against this kind of prescience. In order to do that, I would have to put in a little bit of my own free will, namely, these 40 experiments uh, correspond to one of 40 buttons I pick. You have to give me, you know, when, uh, you have to give me the free will to press one of these 40 buttons, so some electromagnet changes in direction, and then, with that, even a prescient person cannot, cannot predict all the 40, or you get into a mathematical contradiction. See, there is no absolute proof that, that determinism doesn't work. It, let, let me, let me uh, 
give you a, a more homely example. You know, I, when I was young, I, I, I was growing up in England, uh, I loved movies, and uh, I went once each week, and one day I saw a movie I really liked, Casablanca. I think you all know the movie. And at the end of the movie, Rick Humphrey Bogart has two letters of transit for getting out of uh, out of Casablanca to the free world. And there are three people there, Ingrid Bergman, the love of his life, and her husband, who's a freedom fighter. The question that, that Humphrey Bogart has to make answers, which one of the two is he going to give the transit? So, I mean, I didn't know which one he was going to choose. It really was a question. <laughs> And of course, we know he does the noble thing. I'm not giving anything away at this point, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he allows the Ingrid Bergman, the husband, to leave. He joins the Free French with Claude Rains, the Vichy police captain. They now join the Free French at the beginning of a beautiful friendship. So that's the story. By the way, I've heard afterwards it really was a free will decision because the script writers had, couldn't decide which way to end and then finally decided on this. Anyway, what I want to say is this. I liked the movie so much, I went to see it next week with a friend of mine. He had never seen it. And he had the same thing. Humphrey Bogart has a free will decision, right? I knew that he didn't have a free will decision. This was the second showing for me, right? So he, couldn't, he had to make that. Now, my point is this, you know, here's the universe, and, you know, there's uh, Kurt Gödel is a famous mathematician at the Institute for Advanced Study, and aside from his, his work in logic, he worked in relativity also, uh, he was a friend of Einstein, and in his usual quirky way, he found a solution to the relativistic equations, which is a cycle. That is to say, the universe completely repeats itself. Now, that's a possibility then. So here's the universe. Maybe there is free will and maybe not. But in the second showing, there cannot be any free will, right? So this sort of logical possibility shows you cannot get away with proving that, you know, you cannot get away from proving that determinism you know, that determinism can't work. This shows that, you know, that in the second showing, everything is totally determined because it happened the same way as this, just like in the movie, right? So you have to give, you see, there is no, it's, it's a little like um, solipsism. There is no absolute logical proof that says that you aren't just a figment of my imagination. You know, you've tried to surprise me and this and that, but of course you, it can all happen. In, and we know there is such a model because when I go to bed at night, I dream, and the, you are, these people are figments of my imagination, and yet they do surprise me and so on. So it is a fact that it could be the solipsism is a logical, it's ridiculous, but it's a logical possibility. And determinism is exactly the same thing by the second showing. It's, in my opinion, ridiculous. If you ask a child of four or five whether they have free will, and I've tried this, 
And they say, well, well of course I have free will. <laughs> you have to be sophisticated enough to talk about things like determinism, either from a religious or scientific point of view, to start believing that, that we aren't all robots and everything is determined. So uh, my point is that uh, you know you, there is no absolute proof of either deter uh, that determinism doesn't uh, work or that solipsism, for that matter, doesn't work. Uh, we have to, so free will, and that's the same thing with free will. So yeah. actually, that ties in a little bit with what I said earlier that I, I like to think of free will as something that's not falsifiable in a scientific yes. way. And therefore, there's a sense in which it's more of an axiom that we adopt than... You know, my point is the opposite, that you have... There is no way of establishing free will absolutely. Oh, I agree with that. And like in this theorem we have, if you give me a little bit of free will of pressing one of these 40 buttons, then I can say that the whole world is spontaneous, you know, that actions of, of particles are spontaneous in this sense, Given, given this theorem and quantum mechanics. But you have mm -hmm. to, you, there's no absolute proof. You have to put in a little, you know, if somebody says, look, you're, you're assuming free will to prove it. Well, I can say, look, you know, it's like the fisherman. He puts in a minnow and catches a trout and somebody says, hey, I saw you put the fish in. What have you done? You have to assume a little bit of free will and then the whole world becomes you know, a, a, an arena for free will, or even of particles. But, uh, you know, it, it has to become simply an axiom that free will exists because there's no way of proving it absolutely. No, I, agree. Mm -hmm. no, I, I mean, may, may I go back to, to what Ken said before? Yeah. The, the issue of survival of species. And, and you kind of made it look pretty easy. I mean, you know, we, we do the things that serve our survival. But what if we don't? What if we are addicted? And we know the kind of the, 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 kind of the brain chemistry of addiction is, a, is an interesting thing. What if we are addicted through our whatever, what happens in our brain if we like something that actually destroys us? So is, isn't that a step further in the debate on free will or not. I mean, you know, the kind of, we are, you know, we, we, the way we live, is that really conducive to survival? I mean, in economy, in, well, in, in ecology, in, in all, in politics, in all respects. I mean, so are we, and then, you know, here's again where the theology comes in, because, you know, these people, and, and I'm just realizing it while listening to our debate here, these people have been kind of brutally realistic, saying, you know, we have the bondage of free will. I mean, this was one of the big terms in, in the 16th century. The bondage of free will versus free will. So that is Erasmus of Rotterdam versus Martin Luther. So they kind of... Luther says there is not such a thing as free will, only theoretically, but practically we are kind of, we are in, imprisoned, incarcerated by, by things we can't control, really. And, and that is what I would call really addiction, is a good translation. We are addic addicted to doing exactly what destroys us. 
So how do we deal with that? Yeah, so, 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 so um, you know, addiction from a medical sense versus for the way you're describing it, I think there's a good analogy there, but, but it is a very different thing when we're talking about addiction, yes. of course. Yeah. Um, but there are certain ideas that we are compelled to. Right? So, so, so um, if we all held the exact same idea and it was the wrong idea, that would be detrimental to our species, right? Whether it was an idea or a behavior or, or something um, they were expressing. But the, but the wonderful thing about, about any species is its diversity, right? And, and that, that's really what protects a species for, for future events that it can't predict. Um, and so um, our biology sets that up for us, and, and, and that's not just expressed in, in how tall we are or our hair color or, or all these other features, but it also expresses itself in our brain structure, which gives rise to our beliefs and, and our behaviors. Um, having that diversity is really important for any species, and so um, having this debate and, and having um, ideas kind of develop is, is probably the thing we want to do. We don't want to actually um, settle on the wrong answer for sure, um, since we don't know where we're going to find ourselves in the future. But addiction hmm? to fossil fuel may have a gene. Uh, yeah, it it yeah, may. Just <laughs> um, uh, but you know what I was. What I think is is uh, when I was saying that maybe a norm, a moral norm, that we don't cease to see ourselves as agents with freedom, mm -hmm. even in the face, even if determinism were established and neuroscience had its play. Uh, I was really giving a secular version of many of the things you were saying when you talked about good and evil and, and so on. So, I mean, uh, that is certainly how a lot of people think of it in theological terms, but, but you can also just think of it in secular terms and talk of just normative and moral and so on. So I think we are both saying the same things in dramatically different idioms. Uh, uh, but you know, that suggests, and I think you want to, to say it too partly when you say it's, it's just an axiom. It's not the sort of thing that you will allow to be refuted by this thing. And, and I'm suggesting that the disallowing is a normative stance, a moral stance. Uh, so there seems to be some convergence on this, and even you agree. You, you talk of it in terms of usefulness, which I have some qualm about, but, but, uh, but that's a matter of detail. So here's a question which I want to um, uh, bring the two of you in on this. The kinds of things uh, uh, you were talking about discusses free will at a level of abstraction, uh, whereas what has been surfacing here is that it's a normative notion as well. So maybe we should just say it's an ambiguous notion. Right. I absolutely free agree with that. Free will is just an ambiguous notion. So let's say freedom, which is studied as a purely metaphysical thing in terms of you know, scientific laws, what interpretation we give to them, and so on, that's freedom in its purest, most metaphysical form. Let's give another name to what has emerged as freedom as a normative stance. Let's call it freedom. And, and I submit that Shridam is the notion 
that everybody's always been interested in. That everybody right. has always been interested in. So, yeah. so, so I would call that human choice behavior. I mean, I think that's when we talk okay, about free will. I don't care. Call it X. Call it X. It doesn't call it anything you well, like. The my, point my, is, it's just two different notions. So, so my, my hesitation to, to move to freedom um, versus uh, free will um, is that, 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 first of all, freedom, I wouldn't know where to start with to go looking for what to, what to um, observe, what to, what to uh, measure there, or, or how to even think about that. With free will, it has, um, it, it has the appearance that there's less of that problem only because we all know that phrase, right? But if, if you know, a, a simplistic point of view, you know, the word free has, you know, six or seven definitions. The word will has a, a dozen. You multiply those together, and I mean, you're getting a whole variety of things that it could possibly mean. And so it is absolutely ambiguous, and, and um, whether it's an axiom or I, I think I would actually put it as, as a belief um, it's not as useful to me for, for, for what I want to do with, with whatever it is that we're talking about um, to, to do anything with. What, what, I'm, what I find interesting is that when we talk about free will, we're not talking about um, the behavior of, of other organisms, except for when the conversation kind of diverges. We're talking about people, right? Um, we're talking about human uh, behavior and, and, and how do we make judgments over that behavior, how do we use it, you know, and so, um, so it, you know, perhaps freedom might be something useful to, to, to go in that direction and define it specifically, um, but I think whatever that is, it boils, for me, it boils back down to uh, how do humans behave, where do those choices come from? Okay, but right. do we have a concession from, from a neuroscientist? That's what you are, right? So do we have a concession from a neuroscientist that all the deliverances of your research on freedom makes no difference to freedom? I'm not sure what freedom is. Honestly, I mean, I, that, that, if I'm going to commit to something, I would want to know. You know but you, you know what freedom is. I got the notion from your remarks about usefulness and so on with some modifications. I, I study human choice behavior, right? So, so, so no, no, but you so, talked about the usefulness of a certain concept, mm -hmm. which we don't. That's all. Ah, so I'm talking. So for just about, what about a, a generic concept or the idea. Good. So I'm talking about what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So you know what I'm talking okay. about. I, I guess so. <laughs> so, so. Let's go with it. <laughs> so, so, so do we have a concession from somebody who researches a neuroscientist that whatever the deliverances of your research are, they leave completely untouched? This other thing, call it whatever you like, but you know about it because you raised this concept. You named it, um, and I would, I would not concede as far as the way I, uh, I'm understanding what you're saying. Neuroscience research and trying to understand how the brain works and how it gives rise to human behavior um, does a lot of things on which we could observe. And a lot of the behaviors that we observe in humans are expressions of the beliefs that we carry with us, right? So, so. Um, I'm trying to gather what you might mean by freedom or, or some other concept, whether it's free will or, or something else. Um, and in the spaces where we can agree and, and do something productive as, as two agents, um, th then we can move forward, right? But when we're talking about beliefs, whatever kind of belief that might be, um, that is an area that's uh, not as well explored in neuroscience as, say, the visual system or, or how we smell things in the world. But it's a real thing, right? And, so, and it's a big problem 
even in the medical industry, with a placebo effect, where simply the idea can actually have an impact on your nervous system, and it's not just compliant behavior, but you actually see physiological changes due to the suggestion um, that this pill is going to help you. Right? Um, so the impact that beliefs have on human nervous systems is very real. Um, and it's something that we don't understand completely, but it's something that should be researched more. No, no, so can I, can I, can I change? Mm -hmm. So just to try to bring the two things together, um, do you agree that as, as neuroscience improves its methods, its measurement techniques, and so forth, that there will always be a irreducible degree of unpredictability of human behavior, or that it's purely a matter of measurement? If there is a if there is a irreducible level of unpredictability, we can call that shridam. You know, the fact that even given all the uh, addictions, even given all the uh, neurological conditions that people have, even given all the beliefs as you want to define them, there is an element of choice in, in, in humans which uh, is inherent to that human for one reason or another, and I'm not going to go into quantum mechanics at this point, but there's an irreducible level of prediction that we, we can agree to call that whatever you want to call it, X. That's but um, I, it seems to me that what we're entering here with this is the intractable mind-body problem in general. I mean, this is a sort of special case having to do with beliefs and uh, free will and so on. And the question is, what does the neurology, neuroscience have to do with, with the brain? How does that connect up with the mind? And uh, my own feeling at the moment is that uh, it's got interesting things to say, but uh, does not does not cross that chasm. I mean, and I don't know how that chasm can ever be crossed. I've read many books on this by both philosophers and neuroscientists, and. There's always a, a big gap that happens that uh, whatever happens at, at the level of neurons and what happens, it, it does not cross into the mind. Uh, that's a separate issue. I don't know if it can ever be crossed, but it seems to me the free will and, and, and the question of what happens you know, in neurobiology is a special case of this. Yeah, so what... I so I share the frustration. I mean, a lot of neuroscientists will say that the mind is just the brain, right, and whatever it yes, does. That, um, that, is, that is stated um, with a lot of faith, right? I, I mean, it's not clear that that's actually been demonstrated. What we know is that, that when I do things to brain tissue, that I can change the expression of behavior, right, which is our proxy for, for mind. Um, it's one thing to say that what happens in the brain is, is a determinant for, for, for what happens in the mind. And we don't know how, we, I, I would say we don't actually know a, a great way to assess mental behavior other than the things that we could measure, which would be either brain activity or behavior, right? And so, um, you know. Uh, right, right. And I believe that uh, to a large extent, and that's why I believe this, uh, the relevance of quantum mechanics and the fact that uh, that, there, uh, that there's indeterminism in the material world outside of the brain, outside of humans, that that, in fact, is something is going on in the brain which makes use of that freedom of particles, 
I mean, we know very little about what happens. Most, you know, a lot of people who work in neurobiology says, well, quantum mechanics doesn't, doesn't play a role in this. Well, it doesn't probably at this level that is being studied, it doesn't. But, you know, evolution is very opportunistic. It seems to me very unlikely that in the end, what's happening in the brain at the level of molecules does not use all kinds of purely quantum tunneling uh, and this kind of correlations that, that uh, happen in quantum mechanics that are purely quantum mechanical, that these are not being used at the level, at the molecular level. I believe that's what's going on. And that's why... It hasn't been investigated yet. Well, uh, simply because it's very hard to investigate what happens at that level in quantum mechanics. Even when it's set up in special experiments, it's very hard to deal with it, although there are many interesting experiments going on at the level of single, single particles. But in the brain, it's much, much harder, of course, and I believe that in the end, it will be shown that their quantum mechanical effects do, do play an important role in what's going on in the brain. And I think, in the end, that the free will that we feel, it will be connected up with this kind of spontaneity that happens with particles. Because I do believe that the arguments made by people like Hume and so on, the, uh, don't hold much water. I think he's talking, by the way, about free action. You know, he talks about if action is not coerced from the outside and I do what I want, then this is, this is Hume, then I am now have free will. I think that just simply begs the question. I mean, that it could be that my, I don't have free will anyway because everything is determined. Yes. But it just happens to be that he was talking about classical mechanics. And if you talk about quantum mechanics, the whole question doesn't arise anyway. So, so I mean, if I understand what you're saying, you're making a case for something like a random number generator. No, at the, the no, I'm not. no, That's another point. Okay. Um, <laughs> you see, the incompatibilists say, agree with what I was saying here, that compatibilism is, is in fact doesn't agree with free will. So they bring in random choice or random things. And the compatibilists say, well, you're no better off than we are. If part of your choice is that you throw a coin and your choice is based on whether it's heads or tails, how have you gotten away? How, how's that free will? So random choice doesn't help. There's a subtle point here. What happens in quantum mechanics is not random choice. If I do a single act, look at the decay of a single particle, it'll decay at a certain time, and that happens at a purely random time, that's true. But what happens in quantum mechanics is if you have several, say, two particles that become entangled or correlated in a quantum mechanical way, then what they do together is far from random. What happens here Actually, in the case, what's called the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen experiment, the EPR experiment, what happens actually determines what happens in the other one. And you get effects that are very, very different from random choice. And it's these correlations which happen, can happen over distances that I think play a major, will end up playing a major role in understanding how the brain 
uh, works, and in particular how free will can occur in the brain. It's not random choice simply. That's a classical notion, uh, which is sort of, you know, it's supplanted by something much more radical in quantum mechanics, that it isn't simply random choice, but it's a kind of correlated choice that happens that's much more complicated. Can I just jump in on that? I just want to understand what you are saying, because I have the impression that for me it's something like music, what you are saying. I mean, and I don't fully understand it, but I, I have a sense that this matters and that is translatable into something that kind of theologians have been discussing in a completely different language. Yeah. And it would be very helpful if we could make these languages compatible in order to understand what we are each talking about. And, and what I hear you say is something about spontaneity, something about leaps that are not random but still leaps. I mean, so something, so in theology the, the, the kind of vocabulary for that is something new is happening. Mm -hmm. You know, that is not random, but it is something, things are coming together, and it is no longer the question whether I go to Macy's and I choose a black dress or a blue dress. I mean, this is not this kind of free will thing, but it is something, can I go beyond the choices that are, you know, in which I am trapped. I mean, you, I can choose this or that, but it doesn't make really a difference, and or it makes a difference, but it is not not the difference that I would say is the theological difference, the difference between life and death, survival or not survival. I mean, you know, kind of uh, going out of this bondage of choosing things that are destructive and finding a way to live that is no longer self-destructive, for example, self-destructive, by kind of things coming together, happening in a way I don't know where, subatomic or whatever, you, how you call that, or in, in the brain, the neurons, or whatever. So the, I mean, this is what theologians have been discussing. Is there, and they have talked about spirit in that. So mm -hmm. The spirit transforms the, the ways we act, and, and the, the, they transform the whole experiment. It is a different, it is move, moves it in a different space on a different stage, and mm -hmm. there all of a sudden we see things happen that we haven't seen before. Yeah. And it is not random, it is not, it's still in this kind of oval shape, but it is something that maybe we didn't expect. Mm -hmm. Well, let me bring up something you said in this connection, and, and, and with your two cases, one of which is coerced and the other one isn't. You were mentioning addiction. Suppose you look at a person who's really addicted to heroin or uh, cigarettes, uh, and uh, he really can't, he can't get around that. Yeah. Now, if you say, I say, I, I want a cigarette, I want to smoke a cigarette, and I smoke it, Hume would say, okay, you're using your free will. But if I'm really I may not want what I want, yes. right? Because, but I can't get around it. Yes. I'm coerced in that sense internally. Yes. And uh, this is, by the way, this argument against, you know, uh, that determinism cannot be compatible with free will. Yes. 
because if, if, if determines happen inside, then it, simply because I want it, I'm being forced to want it, just like an addict. So uh, this idea of addiction sort of makes, no one, I think, in this room would say that somebody who's addicted to heroin and, and does bad things is at, at the same level as somebody who's Absolutely. not. Absolutely. And that's a, a big Absolutely. distinction. We all feel yeah. there's a moral distinction there. Exactly. Right, right. And, uh, and I think this idea then is, you know, it's, we all agree on this. And how it, you know, how it plays out from the idea of general physical theories is a very difficult question. As I said, there is no, there are no very good current experiments that bring into the brain this idea of spontaneous action of particles. By the way, that's a very old idea. I mentioned Epicurus actually brought in 2,300 years ago the very, this very idea. He said, look, you know, there was this idea of Democritus that everything is atoms and things uh, just fall into the void if they're heavy or go up into the heavens. He says, first of all, there'll be no interactions going on if you do this, but also you won't get free will. So he posited tiny little, what did it, click, kilomins, uh, uh, is it? Uh, yeah, they, what it's called now, swerves. And some of you may have read the Greenblatt's book called The Swerve. It's about, uh, you know, Lucretius' book on, on Epicurus. And he introduced a sort of spontaneous action of these particles so that they interact, but also so that the free will can, can exist. Because he didn't believe what these Chrysippus and the Stoics believed, that, that you can have free will if everything is determined. So this idea, quantum idea really goes back to the Greeks of 2,300 years ago. So I guess I'm, I'm curious where, where you get, um, where, where the step goes from spontaneous action and molecules, because there, there is some evidence actually in the, the brain that there is a lot of spontaneous activity. Yes. Right? And, and you could take tissue preparation to in see the spontaneous activity. Um, now, whether that's tied to something we don't understand yet, or if it is some kind of spontaneous action, um, that, that's a whole other uh, area of research that's ongoing. Let's say, I, I don't I'm, think, no, I don't know. People have talked about it. There are articles saying uh, quantum, mechanical, uh, quantum mechanical effects already exist at, 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 at the level of animals, and they give examples with bird flight and various other things. I'm not convinced by that myself. It doesn't sound, uh, the, the experiments are not well, that. Our retina, I mean, our retina is sensitive enough to detect a yes, single photon. Yes, single photons are detected by the retina and go to detect them. So, so it's clear that single particles, like photons, have an effect on the brain. Mm -hmm. we, we essentially see one or two or three photons. And, and, and I mean, the thing that's, that's stunned me is that, that you could set things up so that a single photon yep. could cause a person to run a marathon, mm -hmm. right? You, you set them up in a room, you get the experimental control, and you give them the instruction. Yes. When you see a photon, get up and run a marathon. Yeah. And if they're a willing participant, that'll trigger it and they'll go. Right? And that's a whole lot of, of activity that, that is spontaneous by, by single, by single photon. photon. Right. Um, and it's kind of, but, but um, there are certainly other uh, effects in the brain that are, that are likely taking on uh, yes, these yes. effects. So I'm curious, I, I guess, where do you get from spontaneous action 
to kind of a freedom in choice. Because when we talk about free choice, the question is about who is in control, right? Is it, is it me, the agent, that's in control, or is it, is it control external well, to me? You mustn't think of this, that a single uh, particle in the brain, that this, this spontaneity of a single particle, I don't see that as translated into our free will. Exactly. It's, it's a whole, it's a, some whole unknown network which is partly spontaneous, partly regulated by, by the network itself, that somehow gets translated. I'm not saying I have any theory at all about it. I just have the hope and, the, and even the expectation that nature works, you know, evolution works in, in such an opportunity. I can't believe that it doesn't make use of these quantum mechanical effects. I would I, and, yeah, I share your disbelief. I mean, absolutely, nature yeah. is likely taking advantage of these. But is there any reason to expect that the kinds of non-random forms of spontaneity that you feel is established I within... I call it random. It's, that's that's a non-random. Yeah, non it's non-random. It's, that's right. It's a probabilistic thing, that's but right. these correlations right. are not random. That's what I say. Oh, so, sorry, non-random. So, so the question is, is there any reason to believe that what you, let's say, rightly claim, that there's non-random forms of, of spontaneity that counter the deterministic ideal, right? Yeah. That those things mm -hmm. will coincide with the things that, in our understanding of free will, we talk about, such as intentions to pick up this thing and trick. I mean, it just seems to me there's this absolute, we have no framework by which to say this non-random spontaneity that's established is going to, case by case, translate into the intention that with which I drank this, which constitutes my freedom, the intention with which he picked up the microphone, which constitutes, I mean, we have no framework to say that these well, two things will coincide. No, it, it, it coincide, but you know, there are experiments in which single molecules are supposed to let you uh, recognize your grandmother. You know, what's sometimes called the grandmother cell or something. Single cells, I should say, not particles. Single cells may have such effects. So the fact that, you see, there are some correlations of this type between what happens in neurobiology and what happens at the level of mind that you're talking about. Whether free will will be one of them, I don't know. I have a, that's only a hope and maybe uh, you know, an expectation, but that's all it is. And there are some sort of more simple things in neurobiology that do correlate. Well, that's with, right, because, because if you take Libby's experiments, you know, these uh, uh, these RPs, which are detected by the EEG and so on, are speaking directly to what's are measuring what's mm -hmm. going on when somebody's flexing, you know, contracting a muscle to, to raise their wrist and so on and so forth. But those are immediately, I mean, the observations of the evidence are immediately linked to things which have to do with the intention that's involved when I flex my wrist, etc. But you are talking at a level of abstraction and distance from this when you talk about, you know, the non-random uh, sort of spontaneities that is then I, I, we have no framework by which to bring these two things well, together. Well, so, so maybe I pitch something here. Uh, so, so one thing that, that humans are really good at, or, or, or 
uh, telling stories, but, but also uh, filling in details, right? So um, I can imagine that, that there might be um, some kind of spontaneous action that, that gives rise to behavior that's unpredicted, even for the agent themselves or for others. Um, but then it's filled in with, well, why did I do that? Well, and then you kind of fill in these, these uh, confabulated stories from the agent's perspective. But so. if you don't have a framework which connects them, it sounds like pure fantasy to me. You have to have a framework which says the spontaneities established at the quantum level, etc., are the sorts of things that are relevant to the intention to, to drink this or to pick up that mic and so on. Whereas Libesans, uh, we have a framework mm -hmm. by which to link what is delivered by Libes' uh, 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 experiments on those subjects and things like flexing the wrist and so on. Mm -hmm. the, these things are just theoretically, yeah, a, yeah, there's so a chasm between them. And you, to say, well, we, we can expect the two things will, will be brought together, if you don't have a framework to think, it sounds like a completely idle but speculation. There are, but there are some, not free will, which is much more complex, but at least there are things in the mind, for instance, recognizing a person, which are connected to single cells having, having certain things. I was hoping that another speaker would be, another discussant would be here, Peter Tse. I think uh, there, there was talk of inviting him. You know, he does experiments. I, I don't know a lot of what he does, but I read an article in the, you know, at the level of the Scientific American in which he does experiments in which certain decisions are connected up again to a single molecule, a large molecule, you know, uh, an organic molecule, but activating the molecule has, is connected up to certain decisions. So I'm not, uh, this is far from <laughs> anything like so, a, a theory. Sorry, I, I, I think we'll, have, we'll continue to have these and many more experiments that I think made extraordinary progress in the understanding of the working of the brain and of human behavior. The question, I think, the fundamental question is, uh, what is it going to say about free will, ultimately? And yeah. I think we're always, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think from a point of view of, of, of theory of quantum, we're going to always going to hit a, a, an undecidability wall, as it were, regarding the, uh, the, the true nature of, 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 of human choice. Correct me if I'm wrong. We're going to understand it a lot better. Exactly. Uh, remember, the spontaneity of, of, you can't explain other than saying, well, it satisfies these quantum mechanical rules. Why is a particle choose to go this way or that in uh, the, a famous Stern-Gerlach experiment, a silver atom is sent through some kind of electromagnetic field, and it decides to go this way or this way. And that's the end of the story. The choice it makes between this and that simply is left as part of the theory, and there's no explanation. If you try to give an explanation of this, then you're back to classical physics, and you run into this kind of right. contradiction. It, you just simply cannot explain. You have, you're stuck with this, that this spontaneity is like, as it is with Epicurus, it's there, and you have to accept it. The real question is, how do you connect that to free will? Uh, I can't tell you. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I think we will go now to the audience for their questions. To be brief, please, questions in preference to comments. 
With all respect, I, I believe this discussion has confused the indeterminacy of the, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which governs subatomic particles uh, with the nature of our behavior. I mean, our behavior is determined by the firing of, of neurons. Yes. So that it is completely deterministic. No, it doesn't fall uh, at all. How, I mean, if, if a photon hits our retina, and, and that may be a random event or a non-deterministic event, uh, our subsequent behavior is still deterministic. I don't know how you come to that conclusion. The firing of neurons, so what? I mean, how do, we don't know how the, the there's a certain classical level at which they fire, but mm -hmm. there's a, all kinds of things going on at the atomic level, which we know, we know that atomic interactions satisfies the rules of quantum mechanics. How, how this, how however, it translates, once, I don't know. However, once the neurons fire, our behavior is, complete, is completely determined. Well, there, and I, we, I, have, there, we there, don't so, have control over that. So, so there, there's, uh, there's room in between uh, a particular <laughs> neuron within the brain firing. Um, in, in the actual expression of the behavior, right? So, so um, you could have uh, folks who have had physical injuries that they would actually block that communication reaching to the muscles, right? And so, so just having uh, neurons fire doesn't exactly mean that you're going to get the expression of some behavior. Absolutely. I mean, it's always going to be probabilistic, and, and you might have um, that window defined so that it's extremely high probability, but all kinds of things could happen, not just within the biological agent, but also the environment. And so I mean, we're talking about, about making the connection between neural activity and some kind of behavior or choice, um, you know, and all, all things being equal, uh, right. then more, things will happen. Okay. But we don't, know, we don't know exactly how the quantum effects within the molecules that make up the neurons. I mean, that's just an open question. So, so I mean, I, you know, I'll just end that. And, For and me, the, it's, it's, and it's an open question. the firing is at the end of the... Or once everything is fired, you can say the decision is made. Yes, but what about what happened until then? I mean, but that, that's beyond, that could that's be beyond that, our choice. What? That's that's beyond our choice. That's random or non-deterministic. No, it's why not, is it not a choice. choice? Now that, there, that, that doesn't so, follow. So, so um, some of the choices we make uh, now will have a huge impact on on where we end up five years from now. Right? Life choices. Um, that includes the, the kind of neural activity that might go on five years from now. And so there is an idea in decision neuroscience and uh, of, of goal-directed behavior and goal-directed decision-making where we might have some goal put off in time. And so we can start to do things between now and then so that it's not immediate effect, but, but uh, start to build uh, support and, and, and structure so that we could achieve those goals, right? But, but how is that non-deterministic? I'm not saying it's not that necessarily. Is, that is deterministic. No, I, but you're, I think you're making a, a categorical mistake. Uh, the new firing of the neutron of the, the neurons uh, in the brain, some in collective manner, that's what constitutes the decision itself. And the firing, the firing, may itself have a spontaneous or free will. Uh, 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 you know, we don't know what causes this firing, that firing, and how they come together in some complicated way. To say that because after the firings, if, you know, there's no decision after they fire, yes, but that we're talking about what happens until 
there's some collective firing of the neurons leads, gives us the decision that we make. All of that, as a, as a matter of neurobiology, may have a spontaneous element, which is what we call making the decision. Okay, thanks. It's going to sound like I'm picking up on the same uh, as the previous question, but it's, it's different. I'd like to offer, um, uh, obviously, obviously, overly simplistic, but um, qu causal or quasi-causal model that attempts to integrate some of the different things that have been talked about. Uh, so it starts at the quantum level with virtual particle pair creation. Um, this is, um, being a quantum a phenomenon, it's a non-deterministic event. Uh, it's also the case that some of these virtual particles emerge and typically fall back to the vacuum state for, for once they emerge. Sometimes they're energetic enough to remain uh, in our level of physical reality, if you would allow that. Um, so if we couple this uh, happening within neural tissue, and one of those newly created, non-deterministically emergent uh, virtual particles then interacts uh, with the intracellular neuronal environment in such a way that it contributes to the firing or not firing threshold of that neuron, uh, then we have uh, a potential example of the relationship between quantum non-determinism and a neural event. So then we take it the next step and to the research that you mentioned about the effect of partially of magnetic fields, the neocortex generates a weak electromagnetic field which may in fact have also an effect on the way in which the virtual particles enter or not, uh, and acts on that may or, or not be about approaching firing threshold. And it's also the case in terms of the molecule mentioned that we now know a great deal more than we knew even last year about the, the molecules that are recruited uh, in the, say, memory formation process and the, uh, the DSBs, the dual strand breakages and reconstitution that uh, cause the formation of America. All of these events involve the recruitment of the effective molecules that could be brought about by the activation of the virtual particle made real. That's my idea, and I would like, um, first, well, of course, your opinion. Look, there are many quantum mechanical effects, including the virtual particles we had created and go back and forth, and some that stay. Uh, I mentioned another tunneling, there's mm -hmm. another one. Uh, to me, the, the question of quantum mechanical, what are called entanglement or correlations, uh, play a probably a, uh, but all this is speculation. Oh, it's all speculation, but it does, you know, it's worth speculating in this way because uh, without that, we, we're back to the compatibility question, which yes, I think is now irrelevant given quantum mechanics. Okay, thanks. Thank you very much. You talked about the utility of um, belief in free will, regardless of whether it might be an illusion or not. Um, Pew Research in 2014 conducted uh, a poll, and they found that 54% of Americans deny that climate change is happening and that human beings are causing it. Now, let's take me as an example. Let's say I believe in free will, 
and you're a scientist, and you're telling me I, am, of my free will, am causing climate change that may cause you know, catastrophic um, effects to the entire world, to civilization, then wouldn't that free will belief perhaps contribute to my denying that climate change is happening in order to preserve my self-worth, my self-identity? Um, Akil, you want to tackle this? Um, so let me have it in. We've been ignoring the information about climate change and making decisions that are destroying the planet, let's say. And your question is, is, is this not an exercise, a willful exercise of free will? No, the question is, if I believe in free will, and scientists are telling me that I'm doing this, wouldn't I be much more likely to go into denial in order to not feel guilty and indict myself and other people? I see. So, well, this maybe. You know, I mean, on this subject, I feel that the causal links between our behavior, uh, fossil fuel addicted behavior, and uh, the differences to the climate have not been established with the same spectacular public visibility as, for instance, the causal links between nuclear power and the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki established. The reason why we all know about the nuclear possibilities of nuclear disaster is that the links, the causal links between our behavior and some disaster were completely, in fact spectacularly established in the nuclear case. There's still a matter of arcane knowledges in the climate change case. And, and that's the real problem. We, you know, we just have not got the causal links established for the public mind everywhere. And maybe there are people who are doing this out of guilt, and, and uh, maybe there are people who are doing it willfully. Uh, you know, uh, 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 corporations are paying people to, to hide the facts and so on. But by and large, I think the real thing is to get the information out in a way that it was out in the nuclear thing. Nobody denies the, the knowledge is uh, in the nuclear case. It's just different in the climate case. And it, it took Hiroshima and Nagasaki to establish that causal link. Um, yeah, but, but I think there is a difference because the, I mean, changing our behavior with regard to fossil, fossil um, usage and, and climate change and ecology is, requires us to kind of change, I mean, the things we like. It is the addiction issue. I mean, I like my cigarette, and I'm, if I'm a drug user, I need that, and I don't want to change. So, you know, if they tell me this is going to happen, I mean, we see it is happening now, but, you know, if it's still the bulk yeah, will happen in 10 years, in 20 years. So why not cave in and just enjoy? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. I agree with you. And I think you, what your mention of St. Paul actually goes back mm -hmm. to this. This is, if you put it that way, this is no different from the fact that most of us know that if we fill our gut at every meal, 
we're going to die before we would if we didn't do so. And yet, most of us do feel like that. So it's, the, the climate change case is not different once you describe it that way. And in that sense, it's an irrationality of the kind that Paul and others mentioned, right? We know the better, we do the worse. Well, I think it's also, in some sense, a, a perversion of what used to be rational, right? So it used to be the case that we should fill our gut at every meal because our meals didn't come three times a day, right? Um, and, and likewise, the addictions to cigarettes, um, I mean, these are experiments that, that I have participated with and looked at in, in the groups that I've worked with. Nicotine gets into your brain and it, and it changes the chemistry fundamentally. And, and we have uh, experiments, uh, Tara Lorenz and, and Reed Montague, uh, two of my colleagues uh, ran, that show that, that fundamental uh, computations that, that are very important to how we learn new information, that representation in our brain is changed by these drugs of addiction. Uh, and, and there's new uh, work coming along where we're looking at um, how beliefs uh, could, could either insulate us from taking on new information or not, right? And I think as far as with the climate change issue, um, people hold beliefs about what's important to them and their family, um, and, and that either insulates them from new information or, or, or it allows them to bring it in. And I mean, it's, you know, if it's 50-50 split, um, it just gives you an idea of, of how the variety of beliefs that we have uh, will have an impact on, on what comes next. Um, it's connection to free will. I, I think that, that it's, it's um, not so clear to me. But. Okay, thank you. I just want to say thanks for having this discussion. This is the most important topic in the history of time. So whoever's in charge here should have more free will discussions because there's no more important topic. I just want. Uh, my name is Nick. I'm the, actually the producer of a TV show here in Manhattan on Wednesday nights. Channel 56, Time Warner, it's called Free Will, question mark. We debate free will every Wednesday at 11 on Cable Access Manhattan. George is my co-host over there, and he has a show on White Plains. Anyway, back to my question. Can any of you geniuses who, all right, can any of you guys give me one example in your entire life that, that was a free will decision? Or anybody in the audience, just give me one example of a free will decision. Coming here today. <laughs> was there a cause for that decision? What's what? Was there a cause or a reason for that decision? Well, yes, uh, I'm an economist, so, so I think there's the costs, their benefits, I balanced them, and I made a decision. What's... So there was a cause or a reason to your decision. You just admitted it, right? Yeah. And was there a cause to that cause and a cause to that cause? And you can regress your cause in a causal chain back to the moment before you were born. We didn't self-cause ourselves. Our parents had sex. Therefore, that's an easy refutation of free will. I don't know what's so difficult wait, wait, wait. for you to admit. No, part of the cause was, uh, was my own decision of my mind. I... So you're now a self-cause. You're a little god. You're a first cause. You can cause things without any prior no. causation. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> no. So, so you're just to jump in, actually. Wait, wait. He said his decision to come here was a freely willed decision, and it had a cause. You just said that, right? Yeah. And that cause has a cause, and that cause has a cause regressing back to the moment before you were conceived before the planets were, you know, evolved before, before to the to Big Bang. The causes, just because there are causes doesn't mean the... All right, I'll tell you what the cause is, because I know what the cause is every decision. Just because there's a cause, it doesn't mean it's a determining cause. You know, Leibniz had a certain principle of sufficient reason, in which he says everything that happens has 
a cause that deter actually determines it. Quantum mechanics tells you that the that law is false. It's simply okay, false. Okay, so determinism so or indeterminism does not prove free will. I mean, if you make an indeterminism... No, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, Fine, so. so I'm just saying, you know, there, there are restrictions on my freedom. Certainly I can't grow through that wall even if I want to because it won't stop, it'll stop me from going through it. On the other hand, I can walk around in the room. I mean, just because it's not a question of randomness or complete free will or what have you versus completely determined things by causes. There, there's a, comp, a whole complex of causes that says, I'm going to marry this woman. Some of them determining, some of them not. I want to make this more simple, okay? Right. I, I don't know any of you guys. I know the cause. The cause is always the pleasure principle, otherwise known as hedonic imperative. You're always predicting what will give you the most amount of pleasure and the least amount of pain. So that's the cause for every decision. You have no choice but to do that. No free will. I don't know why we have well, to have... That's, that's your theory, but I well, think we can... Him, I think, I you, think it, we can... I, I'll be happy to talk to you about this after okay. the, the meeting. <laughs> but I think... So you're going to tell I, me how I can... I promise you, after the meeting, after the meeting, you and I will discuss it next. My, my thing is, every cause is going toward your, every human being has no choice but to attempt to go. No, I heard that. Okay. I heard that. But the last so thing no. I want to say is, the belief in free will is very harmful. It's very toxic. It makes people hate other people. It causes suicide. People want to punish themselves because they think they could have done otherwise, which is obviously BS. And it makes people feel like failures when they fail at something. And I think whoever believes in free will needs to take a hard look in the mirror and just know that you believe in free will because you have no choice but to do what makes you feel best about yourself or going towards pleasure. Okay, away from thank you. Next, next question. Hello, hello. Next question. Next question. <laughs> okay, so that was a perfect segue for me. My name is Shulamit. <laughs> okay, and I do this work as a profession. I've done thousands of sessions. And what um, some people here may know about energy psychology is what we're learning is all negative emotion comes from a disturbed energy field and on tapping on certain acupuncture points while we hold consciousness in mind, attuning it to an issue actually brings it up to the surface. And what I have found is that there has been no evidence of free will from my work with my clients. Because once I clear, whether we talk about the information or morphogenetic fields that you may know about as a scientist, from Bruce Lipton's information on cellular biology, wherever you go with that, once we find that information and we remove that information, that person starts unfolding in different behavior. So it's still on some level determinism. But what I'd like to do is talk about the spiritual aspect. I'm probably going to be a pain in the butt because every time I'm going to come here, I'm going to talk about spirituality. But I feel like people aren't talking about it enough. And as far as first cause is concerned as being pleasure, that's a possibility. That's certainly a belief. But I'm going to go beyond that, and I really want to hear what you have to say, and I'll sit down. But I had an enlightenment experience that deeply changed my life, where I got to experience myself as that, or as God, or divine, or whatever. And what I want to say is, and hear what you have to say, 
is if there is nothing but God, creator, divine, and God contains all that there is to be known, and nature is God expressing as law, and law runs everything which is sentient and non-sentient, isn't that determinism? Isn't it possible that free will is essential in us so that we as God expressing itself will be able to abandon oneself to egoic experience? Thank you. You want to? Well, the, is the, the interesting thing is um, if God is the all-determining cause, you could just quote one of these interesting Bible verses where it says, yes, but God created human beings in God's image. So we have part of, we are part of this divine capacity to choose also. And, you know, of course, in theology, God is the supreme free will. And there is no other free will like that. But then you have, and you see, there are, this is what I, this is why I'm not a systematic theologian, but a biblical scholar. So my area is the Bible. Because the, this, there is something else in storytelling than in constructing dogmatic big buildings. Stories tell things from the one side and from the other side. So you have a story where you hear that human beings are there to rule the earth and even subdue it, which is a little bit horrible in, in light of contemporary concerns, but they are there, they have free will. The next story you read, that is Genesis 1 and the next is Genesis 2, human beings are there to serve and to preserve the earth. No freedom at all. They have just to kind of, to accept their role as stewards of creation and they have to adjust to what is necessary. So how do you reconcile the two? And yeah, by telling stories and stories like that, that change you or, you know, and, and I am kind of, I'm finding these stories very interesting. What we tell each other about the moments where we, we were not following the pleasure principle, but we were following some, did I follow the pleasure principle in coming here? No, I was scared to death because I never really thought about free will. You know, you know, this is not my area, you know, I feel uncomfortable. But I thought it is important. Um, and you see, the moment when we went out, go out of our way and do something that we think is necessary, this is why I'm interested in Simon's and in, in your, I mean, these kind of switches that happen when we change the course of our own habits and habitus and, and kind of go into a different mode and maybe look more at the other than at ourselves and all that. I think, and these things happen. I know they happen. So, but you know, this is what I think is free, where free will becomes a power that can change things. And that's what I'm interested in here. Thank you. You know, uh, Isaac Bashev Singer said, we must believe in free will. We have no choice. <laughs> I just want to preface uh, my comments and questions uh, uh, with a statement that I appreciate everything everyone on the panel said today. So this is a respectful, if I have cr criticism, it's respectful. It's not meant to be negative. 
Uh, a little bit about myself, undergraduate. Just keep in mind, we have four other people, so we I, don't I have do. that much time. You don't have to worry about me being verbose. Okay. I'm very to the point. So I appreciated that gentleman's uh, passion and to the point. My undergraduate molecular biologist from MIT, a JD MBA, a year spent at Penn Medical School. I loved uh, hearing all the comments, reminded me of grad school. Unfortunately, it also reminded me of the fact that you guys are so brilliant that you're talking up here. And for the rest of us, unfortunately, it's very difficult because you're not defining what your operating terms are. What is predeterminism versus free will? Dr. Cochin, obviously a brilliant mathematician. I appreciate that. I spent time on the trading floor as, as a market maker. And I understand probabilistic theory. But are we saying that free will, it has to be uh, a conscious decision in our own rational best interest, given what our probabilities are? We never really nail that down. So I, to, to the point, shortly, I have two very concrete questions. One is, and my utmost respect to philosophy, I think this is a philosophical exercise. Philosophy informs everything we do, science, art. Is this a philosophical exercise? What is the purpose? Because from my point of view, people are rational beings. They don't, but they don't always behave rationally. So you cannot always predict their behavior. Dr. Cabal, I'm sure you would agree. Economists have this problem. Keynesian economists have had problems with the economy all over the world. We're looking at a currency crash. And I'm not getting political, but the Austrians, their main criticism is you can't quantify all human behavior. People are rational beings, but they also act with passion and irrationally. I was saying to my colleague that uh, maybe someone who would be very good on this panel would be someone from the intelligence operations community. They have to use game theory to predict human behavior. Both in uh, populations and, excuse me, let me just finish. But no, excuse me, let me just no, finish. No, let me finish. I'm, I'm let me tell you. Uh, you have two concrete questions. I would like you to I, ask those two concrete yes, questions. I, I don't I'm, want you to yes, expand on them. Yes. Because we have other people and then we have I'm a limited time. I'm getting to the point, time. and I don't know your name, I don't know your background, sir. So. so, intelligence community has failed to predict several instances. Economists have failed. Do you acknowledge that... This is a, a useful exercise, interesting, but there is no concrete endpoint in this because, unfortunately, you cannot, you cannot always predict human behavior. And you, I'll, I'll put it in more concrete terms. In experimental design, in experimental design, it is important to define your your independent as well as your dependent variables. This is multifactorial. If we want to talk about photons all day long, we could. Certainly, there's an effect. The sum of those effects does it affect us? Yes. What is the point of the exercise, and what are your operating definitions? That's, it's, okay. it's, it's a Thank why, it's a, and I don't mean to be disrespectful. No, no, I, I really Thank just you. want to understand Thank you. the why is important. Well, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to try to answer. I, I talk about prediction, and of course it's very closely related to the issue of free will. You know, if, if, if there's free will, then there's no prediction whenever there's human behavior. I actually think the distinction or the distance between human-based endeavors like economics and non-behavioral endeavors like say physics or thermodynamics or what have you is smaller than the distance between uh, uh, simple models and complex models. Uh, simple models in economics, for example, studying uh, treasury bill auctions, when people do models of that, they're actually pretty good, fairly accurate in predicting price levels and trade volumes. 
Whenever you have models trying to predict the economy, which is an incredibly complex system, we do very poorly. But the same thing is true, in fact, if you think about it nowadays with, the, you know, with physical sciences. Uh, it's very easy to have laboratory models of Newtonian classic mechanics that are extremely good at predicting whatever you want to predict. But we still cannot successfully predict the weather more than five or six days. Why? Because it's an incredibly complex model. So I don't think it's so much an issue about, I don't think free will in here is playing a very important role. It's more a matter of model complexity. That's the economist's answer to that. Thank you. Thank you. As a biologist, it reminds me of nature versus nurture. It's, it's interesting, but... Thank you. Another time. Okay. Thank you so much for your roundtable. This is wonderful. Um, what is your definition, each of you, of will? Not free will, but will, and how does it exclude animals? Good. Or exclude animals. Um, it's been a very, it's, it was brought up briefly, but just how does it exclude animals or does it? Mm -hmm. So, so I, I'll just start with my shared confusion, I think, on what we mean by free will. And, and we've talked about it being ambiguous or, or what is it exactly, right? So um, for me, when I, when I think about this question, um, I actually set it aside because the notion of free will or, or will. It, it could be choice, it could be the intent to choose, it could be a whole range of things that, that we all, as individuals, kind of share some stake in, in what the definition ends up being. But what it is we're talking about when we talk about free will is how do people make choices? Where do those choices come from? What motivates them? Um, and, and so for me, as a, as a neurobiologist, I study that behavior. I study the organism, which we call humans, and I, I give them choices, and I study their brain activity. And so, so uh, the idea of, of will or free will um, is a provocative concept, and it has use to, to discuss these kinds of things. But, but what I'm interested in when I, when I think about that is, is our capacity for choice um, and what controls that. So. Yeah, I, I do think that's a very important question, and, and I think I'm not going to say anything about the will because I think the issue can be raised by just talking about freedom and not talking about some particular faculty called the will. So, uh, and this sort of sums up, uh, my, I guess, my angle on many of the, the interesting things that have come up in, in what have surfaced and what my colleagues have said. Um, you see, I completely agree that um, in the end this is a special uh, topic within the larger problem of the mind-body problem. And I agree with people like Libé, they're not, not really with the, with the conclusions Libé comes to on, on, uh, on that particular evidence that he provides. But I th generally agree with the view that there is a real sense in which if you talk about the dispositions of an animal's mind, which uh, yield the animal's behavior, and you talk about the dispositions of bodies, whether animals or human beings, there is bound to be a reduction in some sense of the dispositions the mental dispositions to the physical dispositions. 
So if there is freedom, and if the mind is in some way not in these ways dependent on or reducible to the dispositions of the body, it can only be, I think, because the mind contains an element that is normative. If you think of the mind, human beings or animals, or if you think of human beings as being just like animals, then the mind has tendencies in nature. Just because they are mental tendencies, rather than bodily or physical tendencies, doesn't mean that they're outside of nature. So if nature is deterministic, and not as you suggest it is, if nature is deterministic, then the, the mind, because it is, if it contains nothing but natural tendencies, is determined. And there is no free will, as, as you've been saying. But if the mind contains a normative element, that is, when people, so suppose an animal changes its behavior, it, it does something, it's frustrated, it changes to something else. You might think, well, that's animal rationality. Well, maybe it is animal rationality, but the animal doesn't change the behavior by thinking, what I did was wrong. There's no normative element, right? It just gets frustrated and it moves to something else. That's not normative in the full-fledged sense of thinking, this was wrong, I ought to do this. It's normativity of that kind, which I think is, does, is not possessed by animals, it's possessed only by us, and that's what I think, if anything, shows that the mind is not just tendencies in nature, but is set apart. Your question of will really touches on the psychoanalytic question of motivation. But uh, Rob and I, both of us, stayed out of this discussion because we didn't want to bring that in. Um, I'm sorry not to get tongue-tied here. Um, so uh, most of the dialogue uh, was focused um, kind of from this anthropomorphic um, viewpoint on uh, specifically around the um, the problems concerning like the freedom of the individual. Um, and I think that's maybe because uh, like the first step is to conquer this idea of losing ourself or our dualist intuitions that we have um, this kind of privileged seat in the uh, Cartesian theater and, and that science can't uh, probe the subjective. Um, but, and I think it's my, maybe it's a language thing that if we develop the language, but my, my question, what I, what I was interested in more so was um, supposing that we can overcome that for the moment and suspend our disbelief um, and move away from this anthropomorphic perspective on free will and uh, think about it uh, on kind of superhuman and purely materialistic uh, level. Um, the question is, is matter moving towards and possibly, if it's not capable of achieving free will, and would that be a kind of way to move towards a, uh, a kind of designed determinism in a way, if that makes any sense? Who can tackle this? Well, so, so um, one of the things that I tried to put forth in, in, in the way that I see the progress of science on, on these kinds of problems 
is that as we learn how the system operates, right, our, our brain, our bodies in, in society, um, it gives us new options, right? So, so, so there's lots of ways in which we might not be able to make a choice, that we might be constrained. One of them is that we don't know what the options are. If you don't know the option, you don't ever have the option to, to make that choice. And so as we learn about uh, what guides our choice behavior, uh, what constrains that, um, we can have longer term goals where we can intervene on that and actually increase the space of possibilities, right? Um, we do that by inventing new medicines um, or, or uh, new technologies that gives us options that we didn't have 10 years ago. Um, and so in some sense, we are increasing for our species the options going forth. Um, some of them might be good, some may not, might not. So. Thank you. Mm -hmm. cool. Thank you. Hi. Um, well, there's been a very constructive flow of ideas, and I hope this won't be any different. Uh, I'm an undergraduate student, and uh, I'm really interested in artificial intelligence and its impact on future upcoming technologies. And especially more so, how is quantum theory going to, I won't say determine, but anticipate these future technologies and the impact on our society? And do you think that if given unlimited resources and unlimited, I guess, uh, the ultimate proficiency in algorithms, could we create a machine that's capable of replicating itself enough to maybe become free-willing? Actually, um, so there is uh, just within uh, the last month or two, uh, there's a paper, a study published uh, by a team at Google um, where they've developed an algorithm that could uh, basically human level control in the context of a video game space. So they, um, it, it's a really interesting development, kind of a cute experiment. So they have their algorithm play Atari 2600 games. Um, and they basically give the algorithm very little information, about as much information as you might have coming into a game. And the algorithm can learn how to play it to the level of a um, professional game tester, if not better, on some of the games. Um, and so the, the report is called, you know, human level control uh, through this uh, deep reinforcement learning algorithm. And this is a, uh, the, the core of the algorithm is, is, is something that we look at, um, how uh, mammalian brains and actually other, other systems um, do learn. Um, and so here it's not going to necessarily quantum uh, level depictions, but this is just a computation that this algorithm is able to execute um, where it's able to learn from its environment and feedback. Um, to, to the level of, of, you know, how you and I might play a, a video game. Um, and so, so, I mean, if you're interested in that, you should definitely take a look at that. Yeah. But how is that free will? Uh, it's, so, so, I mean, from my, from my point of view and what I've said, that the idea of free will isn't necessarily a useful one for the, what we're actually interested in studying here, right? What we're interested in is, is how do humans behave? What's the sources of that? Whether it's free, um, that, that, that's not... Um, necessarily useful. All of our choices are constrained. We're biological agents. And so there are constraints. There's limits to that. Um, now that we can get a, a, a computer algorithm to, to display a level of control that a human can within that environment, um, I think is an interesting kind of demonstration of, of where technology is yeah, going. It does provide, by the way, I think an interesting test. I don't know if you could run that test. If you had a very large number of such highly evolved uh, artificial 
uh, artificially intelligent, intelligent beings. Uh, it would be interesting thing to see whether there is any uh, distinctive feature in their behavior vis-a-vis -vis humans in a variety of situations. Um, I think that would be an interesting test for at least some notion of, of free will. If the answer is no, then I would say that there is no free will as we're defining it in here, as at least as I was thinking of defining it, I think. Okay, thank you very much.